So when I was a college student at the Tacoa, I would come back during the summer times and would be a camp counselor at a camp up in uh, Finley Lake, New York, called Camp Finley. Right there, if you've never been to Finley Lake, it's a it's a small lake, um, beautiful area. We'll have summer cottages there, and and the Pikes Peak uh, Ski Resort is just not that far, so it's a good uh, resort area. There is an island in uh, Finley Lake, supposedly. Jim Kelly, the famous Buffalo Bills quarterback, owned that house in the island, uh, which was kind of cool. But one of the things as a camp counselor is we had different camps, and one of the camps we had was tent camp. We were never really involved in tent camp, but basically the campers would come, um, and they would camp out all night, uh, sorry, all week long in tents, and and they would cook around the fire and, and so forth. And... One night as we were going, uh, we didn't have uh, campers one night, so the staff went up and joined the 10 campers around the campfire. And they would always have travel time, singing time, song time, and they one of their favorite songs that they sang was by this guy, John Denver. I am not a John Denver fan. I've never heard of John Denver until that time. And then they sang this song, Leaving on a Jet Plane. And plane. And I was like, huh, that's an interesting song. Uh, and it's uh, just so uh, you probably all know it, though, but these are the words for the younger generation uh, that are like me who have never heard of John Dever until that time. All my bags are packed. I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up to say goodbye, but the dawn is breaking as early morn. The tax, taxi's waiting. He's blowing his horn. Already I'm so loathsome I could die. So kiss me and smile for me. This is, well, this is a church camp we we're thinking about as well. So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never, will never let me go. And then the chorus goes something along the lines. This is the only phrase I know. Because I'm leaving on a jet plane. I have no idea how the song out after that. But that was the phrase that we got in there, and we just kept singing it over and over again, and now it's stuck in your head for the rest of the time. But that's in a real sense how John Dever is telling his loved one that, hey, I'm leaving on this jet plane. Uh, I, I'll be back uh, sometime, you know. That's a really a sense what Jesus is doing here when you get into chapters 14, 15, and 16 of the Gospel of John. Jesus is there, and the reason why we call this the upper room discourse is because Jesus is there eating, celebrating the Passover meal in this upper room with his disciples. Now, it's just not the 12 disciples. We know there's probably other, but at least the 12 disciples are there right around the, the table with Jesus. And if you have seen the famous picture of um, Jesus and his 12 disciples, they all sat on one side, I guess, to get the picture time there. So according to Da Vinci a little bit. But he, he was, Jesus is there. And he knows if you go back to John chapter 13, where this is the initial part as Jesus is there, as Jesus goes and, and prepares for the meal, he then washes his disciples' feet there. He knows his hour had come. He knows he only has just a, a small amount of time left before he was going to be arrested, before he was going to be crucified. And so John gives us the most information about that time. 
You know, when you read the other Gospels, you think, oh, it's just maybe about 10, 15 minutes, and then Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. No, Jesus is there with His disciples for hours, preparing them for this is what's going to happen. I'm leaving. And that's where we, we start off in, in John chapter 14, verse 1. He tells His disciples, you know, do not let your hearts be troubled. Well, why are their hearts troubled? Why in the world are they going through such a, 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 a having this turmoil in their hearts? Well, because it goes back to kind of three things that Jesus tells them back in John chapter 13. And I kind of go through this. John, the first one, John chapter 13, verse 21. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. So that's the first thing that is troubling them that one of Jesus' disciples is going to betray him and of course they're all looking at each other at that time and being like oh who's that going to be to the point where you get this kind of goofy scene where john is not called john he's the disciple whom jesus loved is, is reclining next to jesus because that's how they ate they didn't eat like in tables and chairs like we do but they they reclined and so they would have a small table kind of on the floor that they kind of leaned up back against and, and and kind of reclined so john the head was kind of towards jesus and peter is across probably across the table and peter says john john ask him Ask him who's going to be. And so then John says, who, who's, who's going to be that person that betrays you? Of course, Jesus then goes on and answers and said, well, it's the person I want to give this bread to. And, and he gives it to Judas. And of course, he tells Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas leaves. But the disciples have no clue about what's going to happen, how Jesus is going to be the one that's going to lead the soldiers to Jesus to arrest him. And so they're still troubled by this heart. Their hearts are still troubled trying to figure out, okay, who, what's going to happen? What, what, someone's going to betray Jesus? No, this, this is a, we're, we're all in this together type mentality. Secondly, Jesus tells them is this. John chapter 13, verse 33, that I'm leaving. Verse 33, my children, I'll be with you only for a little while. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus tells His disciples, Jesus is, I'm leaving. Jesus is leaving them, and they cannot go with Him. Can you imagine that? You give up your, your three years of your life for somebody, and as you're there with them, all of a sudden they say, hey, guess what, I'm going on a trip. But yeah, you can't come with me. And you're like, where are you going? Well, us all we've been doing for the past three years has been has been going around with you. Like like we've been with you. What? Where are you going during this time? Again, their hearts are troubled. This inward turmoil that they're kind of scratching their heads about and thinking, Jesus, what are you talking about? And then on top of that, Peter, who he he's the one of the more vocal ones out of the group says, Jesus, like, like, no, this is crazy talk you're talking about. We will go with you. There's no way you're going to go and, and not, we're not going to be able to go with you. And then Jesus says this, John chapter 13, verse 38. Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me, not just once, not just twice, but three different times. Peter will disown Jesus three times before 
the morning comes. See, it was already nighttime. That's why Passover was celebrated. Once the first star came out into uh, the evening sky, that was when the Passover celebration the next day for the Jewish people started. And Jesus said, before the sun comes up this morning, you're going to tell people that you have never knew me. Not just once, not just twice, but on three different occasions. And so then you have, after Jesus tells his disciples those three things, and Judas leaves, and again, they're around this cell. It's supposed to be a, a wonderful, joyous occasion. That's what Passover is all about, because it was the time where you, as a Jewish nation, they would celebrate the, the time when God rescued them out of the slavery of, of Egypt. It was a, a joyous time. This was, their, in a real sense, their, their New Year's celebration. And all of a sudden now, Jesus is kind of, I mean, they're depressed. And they're like, way to go, Jesus. Way to suck out all the, the excitement in this. You're telling us you're leaving. You're telling us we can't go with you. You're telling us that one of, one of us is going to betray you, and then and Peter's going to disown own you three times. And that's why Jesus in verse 1 says, don't let your heart be troubled. Now, I understand you have all these feelings and, and wondering what's going to happen. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You put your faith and trust in God. You, you are trusting in who God is. Well, guess what? Believe also in me. He says, see, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Verse 2, my father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, then won't I come back and, and take you so that you're with me? Again, this mentality is of the, the Jewish wedding cult ceremony where the, the groom would go and prepare the house and prepare the place for, for the couple to live after the wedding. And then when the place was ready, then the groom would go back into and, and have the wedding celebration to get his bride who would then take, him, take her home. And that's the mentality Jesus is having here. Is yes, I'm leaving. Yes, I'm going away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, and when that place is ready, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you back to be with me. And then verse 4. Well, you know the way to the place I'm going. Again, there's two disciples that we see here ask Jesus some very important questions. And, and this first one is kind of maybe the more familiar passage or question because of how Jesus responds, the verse that we know so well. But Thomas goes and says, well, we don't know where you are going. So how in the world do we know the way? Well, we don't know what's going on here. So how do we know? In the verse that if you grew up in the church, you probably have memorized because this is a good verse to memorize, especially when you're sharing the gospel with other people. Verse 6, Jesus says, oh, well, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You see, no one comes to the Father except through me. And again, what Jesus is saying there is, is number one, Jesus says, I am the way. And that, that the way means that He is the only way to the Father. And that's why we use this verse so many times in, in, in especially talking to other people about, about who Jesus is, that He is the only way. 
You can't get to the Father, which is referring to God. You can't get to God through Muhammad. You can't get to God through Hinduism. You can't get through God through, through being good. You can't get through God through anything. It is only through Jesus. He's the only way. And Jesus says it's by Him or through Him that you can get to God the Father. Secondly, He says, I am the truth. If you want to know if something is right, Jesus is saying, if you want to know if something is right, then He says, look to Me. Because I am the truth. Which is why as, as believers in Jesus Christ, His Word, God's Word is so important. How do we know? Is that question when we were talking about you know, sexual orientation, sexual identity. How do we know the, the lies that our culture tells us? How do we know? Because we have the truth of who Jesus is. We have the truth of God's Word that we can look at and say, yes, this is the truth and this is an error because it's against what, God, what Jesus says and what God's Word says. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I am the truth. If you want to know what really is true, look to me and to my word. And then thirdly, I am the way, the truth, and of course, the life. And this is, you know, sometimes we hear that, it's, oh, you really want to experience life to the fullest? And then strap yourself onto this, this rocket or strap yourself on this roller coaster, which, trust me, roller coasters will not make you, I'm, a, I'm afraid of roller coasters for those of them. That, to me, that's not living life to the fullest. That's uh, asking for a death rate, I guess. <laughs> but a lot of prayer during that time, those 30 seconds of flipping upside down. But if you want to live life to the fullest, to live life the way God intended it to be, Jesus says, if you want to live, then follow me. I'm the life. I'm the life. If you want to be satisfied in this life, like, like, like nothing in this world can satisfy that deep down hunger in our souls that thinks that this is wrong except for one person, and that's Jesus. And following after Him with all our, our hearts. If you want to live, then Jesus says, follow me. Well, then the other guy, Philip, after Jesus goes on and talks about that and talks about, I know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then Philip's like, oh, yeah. Lord, show us the Father. That's all that's going to be enough for us. You know, show us the Father, and, and then that, that'll, be, that'll be good. We want to see God. That's what Philip is pretty much saying here. We want to see God. No, we, we've been with you for these past three years. And, and yeah, these have been wonderful times and not so much wonderful times. They've been really tough sometimes. But we want to see God. We want to experience God like never before. Show us God the Father. And Jesus says, verse 9, Philip, don't you know me? Even after I have been with you for these so many years, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say... Show us the Father. And Jesus goes on and explains a couple of things about his, this relationship, this unique relationship between God the Son, Jesus, and God the Father. That then later on in this time when he's explaining to his disciples, he will actually use the same terminology, same language that he uses now to describe his relationship with God the Father to how we are to be as believers with Him, Jesus. 
And the first thing he says is, you know, if anyone has seen me, they've seen the Father. If you have seen me, then you have seen God the Father. We use this kind of uh, illustration or, or terminology similar. It's like a father and son. There are so many times when you are when you're looking at the, the, the son, and this phrase that we have, you know, you are spitting in spitting image of your father. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that may not be so much of a good thing. I had a, a family friend of ours who they hadn't seen me in, in years, and uh, the last time they saw me was uh, when I was about uh, 12 or 13 years old. And he was a fellow pastor, moved away, uh, never kept in contact. And when we moved back into the Western PA district, uh, I, was, I saw him uh, there uh, at, a, at a meeting. He didn't know who I was when I went up to talk to him, but as soon as he saw Lucas, he was like, oh, you're Isaac, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I am. I said, how, like, what happened that we were having, like, a two-minute conversation, and, like, the light bulb wasn't going on, and then I saw Lucas comes up next to me, all of a sudden you realize this is, this is who, who's talking to you. He said, because when we left the church that, that we attended at, at the age of 12, he said, your son is the spitting image of you at that time. Kids, watch parents, and that's what this slide is all about. The kids will watch parents, and they will behave. Just like the parents. And so if your kids say things and you're thinking, whoa, where in the world did you get that phrase from? Listen to yourself a few times and you realize, well, you probably said that, that same phrase. Same thing happened when, when we moved to Washington, Pennsylvania. We had gotten our kids this little uh, push lawnmower that had the little eating mouth that, and it would make sounds like, ooh, grass, good grass. Uh, and, and they had no idea what it was because I didn't mow the yard until we moved to Washington, Pennsylvania. First time I mowed the yard, I pull out the push lawnmower, and all of a sudden I'm walking around the yard. All next thing I know, one of our kids grabs that little lawnmower from, from, the, uh, from the shed. They had no clue what it was. They had no interest in it. And then next thing I know, I see this. Our kids following after me, pushing the lawnmower. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you have seen me, Philip, then you have seen my Father because we're spitting image of each other. I am just like my Father. And my Father is just like me. And part of us would be like, well, duh, because you're both God. And then Jesus goes on and says this, you know, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Bear with me a little bit. Uh, you may feel like you're a little bit into English class, and if you do, I don't apologize because this is important. This is an important issue. Every single word in our Bibles is there for a reason, and the writers use the terms that they use for a reason. And you'll see on the screens there this, this small word. We just read over it sometimes of in. Where Jesus says, you know, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? And that word in 
I mean, you, you, you pull out your Bible concordance, you go to BibleGateway.com and you type the word in, it will come up with thousands upon thousands of verses where this word is in. And a lot of times, you, you, we don't give, again, it's a preposition. We don't give too much uh, thought in this word. But when Jesus says, in the Father, and the Father is in me, when Paul says in Christ, what we've been talking about, you know, our position is in Christ. When Paul says that in, in Galatians, you are supposed to walk in the, in the Spirit, that word in means this, is a close association with someone to the point of being influenced by that person. So we are in Christ. We have this close relationship with Christ that we are influenced by Christ in our lives. We are to walk how? In the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians. We are to live a life in this such a close real association with the Spirit that the Spirit influences how we live our lives. And that's the point that Jesus is saying here. Don't you realize? Don't you realize that the, I am in the Father, the Father and I, you know, we are so close. We are so tight. That what the Father thinks, I think. That's how close we are in this relationship. But then he goes on. And not only does he say, no, in, I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, is the Father, and again, our English translations will say, living in me. But literally, this word living means abiding. Which is the exact same word that Jesus will use in, when we get through this in a couple of weeks. John chapter 15, the, how we are to abide in Him if we want to produce fruit. He says, the Father and I, we're in this close-knit relationship. The Father is abiding me. I'm just not going around talking and doing these things just because this is what I want to do. I'm walking in obedience to the will of my Father. And we're so close that He is influencing how I live in this world. To the point Philip is saying is, listen, if you have seen me, then you've seen my Father. I don't need to have this big experience where, where like Isaiah chapter 6, where you see God on the throne and you're, you're flat on your face mentality. No, because you've seen the Son, you've seen Jesus, and He is just like His Father, that abiding. Then verse 11, Jesus says, Believe in me what I say, that I am where? In the Father. And the Father is, is where? In me. I mean, just in case the disciples didn't get it the first time, he, he says it three different times. This relationship between the Father and the Son is so close that how Jesus is living and who Jesus is and how He responds, that is exactly the same as God the Father. If you've seen the Son, then you've seen the Father. Which is why Jesus will go on and say this. Verse 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in Me, again, that understanding and belief is whoever puts their faith and trust in their entire life upon Me. They will do the works I have been doing. You see, if you believe in Jesus, then you will be doing the works of Jesus. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, this belief is going to affect how you live your life and you will begin to live like Jesus in your life. And that's what he was saying way back in John chapter 13, where he gives them this new commandment to, to love each other. 
And that understanding of, of love and that understanding of service, that is how the world is going to know that you truly are my disciples, is, is how you interact with each other. Which is interesting when you think about that command. I mean, how well, how well as believers in Jesus Christ, how well do we love each other in the, in the, in the church? So many times, unbelievers look at, at the churches and they're like, why would I want to believe in Jesus? They're totally dysfunctional. But Jesus says, that's how they're going to know that you're my disciples is this love. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. If you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you believe in me, then you are going to, your life is going to be changed, and you're going to be doing the works of Jesus. And not only that, but you're going to be doing greater things than these. We have to stop and ask ourselves this question: Well, what in the world is what type of works is Jesus referring to? And when you look at Jesus' life. So many times we, people will pluck this verse out and they look at and they and and they, and they re, use this verse to refer to oh the, it's the, it's the, talking about the miracles it's talking about the signs but do you realize that Jesus did more than just these miracles or signs in his life you know that's what we're attracted to but do you realize when you look at Jesus' life and what he did for 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 the three years that we call his public ministry what did he actually do? He talked with people. He pointed them to God His Father. He showed compassion to the people that needed to show compassion to because they thought they were worthless before a holy God. The religious leaders, he, he nailed them and said, listen, you think you're righteous. You think you're right with God. Well, guess what? You're not. You're sinners just like that woman at the well. You need a Savior just like her. Yes, He did signs and miracles. But what was the purpose of those signs and miracles? Not just to go around willy-nilly healing people, but that's the reason why in the Gospel of John, when he talks about these signs, he's talking about he, 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 he does these things for proof of who he is. Why does Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? To prove that he is God in the flesh. Why does he make water into wine? To prove that he has the power and authority over nature itself. Why does he calm the storms? To prove that he has control, that he is God in the flesh. That's why he did those miracles. Why does the book of Acts talk about the miracles that the apostles did? To prove that the gospel of Jesus is true. Not to lift them up and say, oh man, they're fantastic. That's what Simon the sorcerer wanted. And the apostles chewed him out and said, you can't use the power of the Holy Spirit for your own gain. So again, the question of, so what type of these works is Jesus referring to? Yes, there may be part of that, the miracle side, where we're praying over people, where, where we're laying our hands and asking God to touch. But again, it's not because of Oh, look at me, look how great I am. It's ultimately because of the show the world that God is still in control and God is overall. The works, greater works, is living a life in our daily life that is pleasing and honoring to God. You see, if you believe in Jesus, then you will be living like Jesus. And then Jesus goes on and says, no, this is a good thing. This is a good thing that I'm leaving you. In fact, he goes on and says uh, verse tw verse, in verse uh, um, 13 there, that because of 
I'm going to the Father. Verse 15, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. And so many times, again, we, we pluck this verse out and being like, hey, guess what? God, Jesus, you promise that whatever He asks in, in your name, you're going to do. So guess what? I ask for a million dollars in Jesus' name. You're going to do it, right? Because I've asked it in Jesus' name. And that is where we get some of these crazy things that people pray about. And that's not what Jesus is referring to here. In the the Bible, in Scripture, names, a person's name is equal to their character or who they are. Which is why there are so many times when God will change a person's name. You think in the Old Testament, God changes Abram to Abraham. God changes... uh, God changes uh, Jacob's name, who, may, who Jacob means in Hebrew, means deceiver, to Israel saying, listen, you're no longer going to be that person anymore, that deceiver anymore. I'm changing your name. God changes Simon's name to Peter because of his confession of saying, yes, you got it right. God changes people's names because it's their character. Barnabas. The disciples named him Barnabas, the encourager, because that was who he was. The person in the Bible that so many times people think that God changed his name was, was Saul to Paul. Read the book of Acts. God never changes his name. He is Saul, the persecutor on the road to Damascus, who becomes Saul, the, the missionary, on his first missionary journey. There's a verse there that talks about how he is well, more well-known as Paul, and which makes sense because Saul would have been his Jewish name, but he is the missionary or he was sent to the Gentiles, so he would have gone by his Gentile name or Paul. God never changes his name. God changes his life and becomes the Saul the persecutor to Saul the missionary. And that's what happens there in the book of Acts. But a person's name equals their character, which is why. Jewish culture in that day, day and age. What happened when the per, when a baby was born? They didn't give the baby a name until the eighth day because the parents would look at the child. They would see what's what's their temperament, and then they would give the child a name, especially boys, on the eighth day when they're circumcised, as a way of saying this is who my child is. My name means laughter, according to the Bible. Why does God say to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to name your son Isaac because you laughed at the, in God's face when he said you're going to have a child? To remind you that every single time you call that, person, that child's name, you're going to be reminded, I laughed at God. And God played a good joke on us. Why is Jesus' name Jesus? Because Jesus means Savior. Names mean something in Scripture. And so when Jesus goes on and says, you know, I will do whatever you ask in my name. What it's referring to is whatever you ask in accordance with Jesus' character of who he is, he will do. Whatever you ask in accordance with Jesus' character, he will do. And there's things in Scripture that we know that is his character, that is heart. That every single person in this world should come to know him. And so we should be praying for our neighbors and our co-workers who do not know Jesus and be praying and crying out because His desire is for them to, to understand that they need Jesus more than anything else in their life. We know His character, of, of God's character, 
of His faithfulness. And that He promises to, to provide everything that we need in our daily lives. Maybe not our wants, maybe not our, our, our ambitions that we, we hope, but everything that we need every single day, He's that provider. And we can cry out to Him and say, Lord, this is, this is how I'm feeling right now. This is how I'm, this is what I need right now. And He will provide that. Because He promises it to us. He hasn't promised to take us out of this pain and suffering. He hasn't promised to give us this bed of roses lifestyle. He hasn't promised us that. In fact, He says, if you're going to be my follower, you're going to experience more pain and suffering. Which is why we've got to count the cost. But Jesus says, whatever you ask in accordance to my character and my desires and my wishes, Jesus says, He will do. Then the reason for that, he says in, in verse 13, I'll do whatever you ask in my name or according to my character so that, this is going to be the result, so that the Father may be glorified through the Son. And who's the Father? God the Father. The reason why Jesus is going away, he tells his disciples, and the reason why Jesus is going, he said, it's a good thing I'm going away. But you have to realize that as I go away, that whatever you ask in accordance to my, my character, I will do so that the Father is glorified, so that God the Father is glorified. That same word of glorified is the same word we saw uh, weeks ago when we are supposed to live in such a way that we are to glorify God with our bodies. It's that same understanding. It's the bugs attracted to light. And again, you put a, in the middle of summertime, you put a light outside, you see these bugs. They're just attracted to light. And, then, and when Paul is talking about how we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, we're supposed to live in such a way that we glorify God with our bodies, that we are supposed to live in such a way that people are attracted to, to coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that's what the same understanding that Jesus is going to answer our prayers in such a way that people's opinions about God the Father are improved to the point that they understand and they realize who God the Father is. And sometimes that may be uncomfortable to us. Because sometimes the best way God can work in our lives and, and to get people's attention is to use us in a way that is, harm, that, that, that is, that is difficult. And that they see Jesus working in our lives. Giving us the patience, giving us the endurance, giving us the ability to hang on in spite of everything we're going through. Because again, it's not about me anymore. When I come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, my life is not my own. I've been bought with the price. I am to live in such a way that brings glory and honor, not to me, but to my God, my Heavenly Father. That people will see Christ in me and through me. Which is why Jesus says, whatever you ask in accordance with His character, His will, His plans, His desires, He will do. So that the Father, God the Father, gives all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm leaving. But it's a good thing. Because I'm going to my Father, and, and yeah, when, when, when time is ready, I will return for you and will take you to my Father as well when those, that place is prepared for you. And the only way you can get to the Father is through me. Because I am the only way. I am the truth. 
I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you want to know how, my, who my, how God the Father is, and what His will, what His desires are, what He looks like, Philip, I have been with you for the past three years. All you got to do is look at my life. And you know, by the way, as you believe in me, get ready because your life is going to be transformed and God is going to use you in some incredible ways. Not to glorify yourself, but to glorify Him in every aspect of your life.